Welcome to the 77th episode of the Head Kick KO podcast. Today we are here to discuss UFC Fight Night Hill versus Santos. Once we are done with that, we are going to go over a couple of quick fight announcements and we are going to preview next week's fight card, which is headlined by Dominic Cruz and Marlon Chito Vera. That will be brief um, because that card is not anything too crazy, but we will talk about it. So, to start this off, like I said, we're going to start right at the main event of Jamal Hill versus Tiago Santos. And this was a great fight while it lasted. Um, we saw a lot of heavy, heavy exchanges, especially in rounds 1, 2, and 4. So, pretty much the whole fight, um, round 3, was mainly grap- grappling. Um, but we saw a lot of heavy exchanges between these two. And I was very, very impressed by Jamal Hill and the way he strikes. If you have, you know, watched this channel over an extended period of time, you are probably aware that I am a major fan of Jamal Hill, and I think he can do some really good things in this light heavyweight division. Um, But I think this fight really just solidified that fact. He was in there striking with someone as lethal as Tiago Santos, And for the most part, it looked like his shots were hurting Santos more than Santos was hurting Jamal Hill. Um, Because Hill was getting hit. Um, I think he landed a shot in the first round that kind of really hurt Jamal Hill for a second. Um, But after that, Tiago landed some big shots, but Jamal was able to stay composed and land some shots of his his own. Um, So I think that was one thing that really stood out to me was even when Jamal was eating shots from Santos, he did a really good job of making sure he was getting his own back. He was never falling really far behind. Um, You can make an argument that he lost the first round. I probably would have scored that first round for Tiago Santos. Um, But even in that round that he lost, he was not too far behind. It's not like he was getting blown out that round. He he was, you know, even though he, he wasn't, you know, at his A game, I think, yet at that point in that first round, um, he was still doing enough to keep that fight really close and he was landing enough Um, and then in round two he started to really do some good work and I think he pulled away a lot in round two and then round three Santos comes out heavy heavy with the grappling pace worked out really well for him round four um, both guys are really really tired the tide starts to swing a little bit in Jamal's favor and once he landed some of the big shots that he was landing earlier now he's landing them on a slightly more fatigued Tiago Santos and Tiago wasn't able to stand or withstand those shots. Um, and then from there, um, Jamal Hill really just relentless with the ground and pound. And he did a really, really good job of um, getting that finish when he had Tiago hurt. So I was very impressed by Jamal Hill, uh, like I mentioned. And... As far as his skill set goes, I really like his hands, and I think he's a tremendous boxer. Um, He throws lead hooks. He throws counter hooks. Um, I like a lot of the things he does on the feet, and I like his activity and forward pressure. I feel like those are things that we don't commonly see in the heavyweight division where someone says, okay, I'm coming out. I'm going to control this. I'm going to push you up against the fence. I'm going to throw some jabs. I'm going to push the pace. Those are all things that Jamal Hill does. And I think that it provides a little bit of a change of pace. And I think that is helpful for him because we see these light heavyweights come in 
and I don't know that they're all used to seeing that pace, um, and it's not anything crazy, but it's just where a lot of guys at light heavyweight, you can work your way up through those light heavyweight rankings without facing a guy with that exact style. So I think this is a good example of I change the pace on you early, and, and Jamal benefits from that. Um, look at how he was able to get Santos tired, right? He, you know, a lot of that was due to the grappling in the third round, I believe. But I think a good portion of that, too, could have been from the forward pressure of Jamal Hill. Now, moving forward for Jamal, I think there are a couple of clear things that he needs to work on if he wants to be a champion. Um, and once again, I'm not saying these as a way to pull down Jamal Hill, but I think he's very, very close to being a championship tier fighter with just two or three small holes in his game that if he can patch up those holes, I think he does a tremendous job in this light heavyweight division. Um, well, he's already done a tremendous job, but I think he can elevate to another level by filling a couple gaps. Um, first of all, is that cardio. I think it's very clear that he was pretty tired at the end of that fight. Um, with that being said, if you have cardio, if you have cardio that's not top tier, it's important that you have the will to not quit. Um, so I think that is something that Jamal has. He has that will to not quit. Um, but I think it is more beneficial to not have to lean on that. So I think a little bit of a better cardio uh, would help, right? Now, um, I think he's okay, right? I'm not saying he has bad cardio. But if he can improve it slightly, that would take him to another level. I think he could check leg kicks a little bit better. Um, I haven't rewatched the fight, but watching it live, I thought those kicks from Santos were landing pretty efficiently. Um, so that's a small thing. And I really w I'd like to see him throw some more kicks. I think he has really good kicks, and he doesn't use those tools quite as much. Um, I think he should have kicked the leg of Santos a little bit more in that fight. He was doing good when he was throwing the um, the inside leg kick when they were in opposite stances. I believe that's when he was really landing that. Um, I didn't like it when he was throwing the lead leg kick. I like it with the rear leg. That's just my, my preference. Um, but, you know, I think he could have kicked the legs a little bit more. Um, and I think he could have kicked the body a little bit more. He did a couple times. Um, but when I say he should kick more, I'm not saying you should go out there and throw four times as many kicks as punches, right? I just think over the course of a five-minute round, you should he should mix in two, three, four more kicks, and I, I think that would help him a little bit, um, but that is just a small, small critique. Getting off the fence, small, small critique where I don't like him sitting up against the fence as much, but... The positive thing for Jamal is when he was getting taken, he was doing a very good job defending the takedowns of Santos. Um, but when he did get taken down, he was able to get right up right away. And he was never really in too much danger. So I think those are all some small things that he can work on that could really elevate him from being... Now I believe he's going to be a top five uh, fighter in the world when these rankings come out but I think those are some small things that can take him from being ranked number five to having that gold belt so like I said I, I really like Jamal Hill and I, and I am very high on his skill set um, but those are just a few small critiques and at the end of the day I'd rather be sitting here saying hey you need to improve your cardio a little bit or hey you need to get off the fence a little bit 
better or hey you need to check leg kicks a little bit better I'd rather be saying those things than being than saying like hey you know I'm just not sure if his striking is an elite level or I'm not sure if he can knock out a top five heavyweight I'm not sure if he has the heart or will to go in there and go in the depths of a five-round fight. I'm not saying those things, right? So he's checked off all the big major boxes, and he has everything that you really need, right? So, like I said, these are just some small critiques that I think could elevate him, but he has all of the big major things. He has tremendous power, great technical boxing, good fight IQ, good takedown defense. He has a lot of the things that you absolutely must have, and he has them at a very, very high level. Um, so I am very high on Jamal Hill moving forward. And now, is the, now that we're talking about Jamal Hill moving forward, let's talk about who he will fight next. When these rankings come out on Tuesday, I'm recording this on Sunday, but when these rankings come out on Tuesday, I think he will be ranked number five in the world. He will, he will either be number five or six. Um, he's just beat the number six guy in the world, so it's a shoo-in that he gets to at least six, in my opinion. Now, the question is, does he jump Anthony Smith to get to the top five? I believe he should. I don't know if he will. I believe he should. If you look at the resumes over the course of their last couple fights, I believe Jamal Hill is on a three-fight win streak against Jimmy Crute, Tiago Santos, and Johnny Walker, right? Yep, that is accurate. And then on the other hand, um, Anthony Smith was on a three-fight win streak over Ryan Spann, Jimmy Crute, and Devin Clark. So if you compare their three-fight win streaks, I think that um, Jamal Hill had a little bit, has a little bit of higher competition, right? Anthony Smith does have three first-round finishes over those three fights, but um, Jamal Hill has two first-round finishes, and he finished Thiago Santos in round four, which was something, you know, you, that's not, a, that's, you know, just because he didn't get him out of there in round one, I don't think we should punish him for that. And Anthony Smith just lost to Megamed Ankalaev. So I, uh, I think that also knocks him down a slight amount. I'm not saying he should, you know, rock slide down those rankings to the, you know, 13 spots. Um, but I, I do think Jamal Hill should jump Anthony Smith in those rankings on Tuesday. Now, this light heavyweight division is unbooked throughout the top five. And when I say top five, I'm once again, I'm assuming the fact that Jamal Hill moves to the top five. And that creates six fighters that need to get booked. So now we are going to book this light heavyweight division. And when I say six fighters, um, here are the six fighters in order. You have the champion, Yeri Prohashka who should be defending his belt sometime soon. I believe they have the pay-per-view headliners booked through November. So earliest we'd see is December, but I, I think it's probably time for the UFC to start thinking about who Yuri Prohashka is going to fight in his next bout. Um, then we have the number one ranked Glover Teixeira, the number two ranked Jan Blachowicz, um, both of those were former champions. We have the up-and-coming Megamed and Goliath in the three spot. We have Alexander Rakic in the fourth slot. It is notable that 
Alexander Rakic, you know, did unfortunately get injured in his last bout. So that is something to keep in mind for his return. And then you have Jamal Hill in the five slot. And then I think just outside of those, you have Anthony Smith, but he's injured. Thiago Santos just lost. But you also have Dominic Reyes in that seventh slot who may be an X factor and get a fight against one of those guys as well. Um, I just don't know exactly how they're going to book that. And you have Vulcan Uzdemir versus Nikita Kurlov. The winner of that may um, break into that tier of fighter as well. But for now, we're going to focus on the five um, or the six big names, excuse me. For Yuri Prohashka, um, I think this is really just going to come down to Glover Teixeira versus Jan Blachowicz for who he is going to fight next. I really do not have that big of a preference, preference if I'm being honest with you. I do not necessarily believe that there's that big of a difference. I would have to lean Glover Teixeira, however, just because he did go out there and beat Jan Blachowicz. Um at the same time, I'm not a big fan of immediately running back fights, um, especially championship fights. That's, that's something that I've just gotten. I don't. I think it's just we've seen a lot of rematches lately, so I have not been as high on rematches. But with that being said, this was a fight that went five rounds. That Glover Teixeira was going to win if it went to the scorecards, and Glover Teixeira. Um, really almost won that fight, but it was a fight of the night that Yuri Prashka was able to pull out a win. So I think there is some incentive to run that back. Plus with Glover's age, it's not a long-term thing where you're not going to have to worry about Glover Teixeira ruling. You know, Glover Teixeira doesn't have to sit in that light heavyweight division like someone like Robert Whitaker or Max Holloway or Colby Covington, right? These aren't guys who are going to be in the top portion of the division for a long period of time. That's just simply based off his age. So I think a Glover Teixeira versus Gary Prohashka rematch does make a level of sense. Then from there, I think it's really interesting when you're looking at what you can do next because one fighter is going to be left out because Alexander Rakic cannot, you know, fight for a while due to his knee injury. Now, when I look at these rankings, I think it all depends on how hard and how fast the UFC wants to push Magomed and Goliath. Because if they believe that Megamed Ankalaev is a future title holder, then I think the smart thing to do for the UFC would be to book Megamed Ankalaev versus Jan Blachowicz. Um And then you have Megamed Ankalaev in a position where if he wins, there's absolutely no dispute. He has to get a title shot. Um, and Jan Blachowicz, at the same time, if he wins, he absolutely has to get a title shot. And that, that fight can happen while Yuri and Glover are fighting, so the timelines will match up as well. And, you know, I think that fight makes a level of sense, like I said, if the UFC wants to really push Megamet and Goliath. However, I think it's interesting, and it, it will depend, I think, this fight booking will depend on who does the UFC think has higher potential and higher star power. Do they, believe, do they believe it is Megamed Ankalaev or do they believe it is Jamal Hill? Because I think that answer will greatly affect how the this division gets booked. And I'm saying that because I think Yabalhovich will fight one of those two guys. If the UFC believes Jamal has that higher star power, 
I think that Jamal gets that fight against Jan Blachowicz in a number one contender's bout. However, like I said, if they think it's Magomed, I think they give Magomed Jan Blachowicz. The X factor here is the UFC may just cut Jan Blachowicz directly out of this picture. And they may just say, hey, we'll just have Magomed and Jamal Hill fight straight up in a number one contender's bout. And that will determine who is, you know, the up-and-coming guy at light heavyweight that will determine who we think can be a future champion. So I think this division will greatly hinge on how that gets booked. Um, so I think it's going to come down to Jan, Magomed, and Jamal. And one of those guys isn't going to get booked. And the person that doesn't get booked is going to be left waiting on the side for Alexander Rakic. Or they could possibly fight Dominic Reyes. I'm not necessarily sure that if you're in Jan's shoes, if you're in Magomed's shoes, or if you're in Jamal's shoes, I'm not sure that you're jumping out of your shoes to fight Dominic Reyes. Um, you know, they will all be ranked far, the, far higher than Dominic Reyes. Jan has already fought Dominic Reyes. And Magomed just beat the number five guy in the world. And Jamal just beat the number six guy in the world. Why would they want to fight the number seven guy in the world? Um, and that number seven guy in Dominic Reyes, I don't believe is, you know, on some rocket to becoming a UFC, you know, star. Um, I talk a lot about defending your ranking against lower guys to ensure they don't hop you in the division. That was my thought process for lightweight at, you know, with Rafael Fiziev because Fiziev is climbing in those rankings. And that's exactly what Benil Daryush is doing against Matush Gamrat. If you fight Gamrat, Gamrat can't hop you in the rankings unless you lose to him. So I think it's a good way to take your fate in your own hands. But at the same time, I'm not convinced that Dominic Reyes is someone who's shooting up those light heavyweight rankings and could pass any of the aforementioned guys. So I think this division will largely come out to, like I said, how do they book those three names, Jan, Magomed, Jamal? And from there, I think the the guy who gets unbooked, I think they are left on the outskirts waiting um, for someone to make a climb or, you know, maybe they take a fight with Dominic Reyes or maybe they wait for Alexander Rakic. So basically what I'm trying to tell you is that this, you know, how this light heavyweight division is booked is very, very impactful because at this point, I think there is a big drop off after that number five slot. And I think once you're looking at Anthony Smith, Tiago Santos, Dominic Reyes, Volkan Uzdemir. I just don't know that those guys are on, still at the same level of your Jamal Hills, Rockets, Magomeds, and the um, obviously the higher ranked guys. Um, no need to keep listing names. Um, but for Tiago Santos, um, maybe he makes sense for Dominic Reyes, right? If you're Tiago Santos, you know you don't want to slide too far in those rankings. Maybe you would look towards a Dominic Reyes. Maybe he fights the winner of Volkan Uzdemir versus Nikita Kurlov. Maybe he, you know, waits and tries to get a fight with Anthony Smith. I think those are some options for Thiago Santos moving forward. Um, I don't think there's anything that really stands out amongst the rest. But um, if I had to put them in order, I would say Dominic Reyes is probably the fight that I would want to see the most for Thiago. Now... Moving on, we had Jeff Neal go out there and really, really dominantly beat Vicente Luque. I was pretty surprised by this. I am a big Luque believer. I really, I, I, I think Luque is very talented, but Jeff Neal was just 
one step ahead all night long. And, right, I don't think he was leaps and bounds a 1,000% better fighter, but he was one step ahead. He stayed one step ahead, and he gradually just piled it on by, by being one step ahead. Um, he was always one step ahead, landing that left hand. And the more he landed that left hand, the more the gap the more the gap widened. And eventually he got that finish. Um, pure pure beating on the durability of Vicente Luque. I mean, I don't really know what else to say for this fight. I mean, this is such a great fight, but for some reason when I was previewing it and when I when now when I'm recapping it, I'm just like, This fight's great great fight. Jeff Neal did great. Um, I don't really have a bunch to say. He he was very accurate in there too, and he did a good job of punching through the high guard of Vicente Luque. I think that was something that Dean Thomas mentioned on the broadcast that Vicente was really depending on that high guard to defend strikes. And when you do that, you can get caught between it, you can get caught around it. Jeff Neal threw uppercuts at the end to split it. And there are a lot of different things you can do to um, counteract that high guard. You can dig to the body. So, um, for Neil, he went out there and put on a very, very good performance, and he now finds himself in a much different position in this welterweight division, because he was sitting at, at that 13 spot, but he got a good fight against the number six guy in the world and went on, went in and just absolutely showed out. I'm interested to see what he wants to do next. If you look at those rankings, you have Gilbert Burns at number four, who he called out. I don't particularly hate that fight at all. Um, you have Bilal Muhammad and Sean Brady sitting at five and nine. Those two are booked to fight. I think maybe he could he could angle for the winner or a loser, depending on how exactly that works out. Um, for example, if Sean Brady loses, he's not going to angle for the loser of that fight. If Bilal Muhammad loses, maybe he could angle for a Bilal Muhammad fight. Um, maybe he angles for a Jorge Masvidal fight. I don't think he gets that Wonder Boy rematch. Um, but I think a fight that does make a lot of sense that I do like is Shavkat Rachmanov versus Jeff Neal. I think when these rankings come out, I don't necessarily know where Jeff Neal is going to be sitting. Um, whether that be, I don't know that he gets all the way to six. He may be looking at a seven or eight slot. So I think a Shavkat Rachmanov versus Jeff Neal fight does make a level of sense. But at the same time, I wouldn't be surprised if they look to book Shavkat Rachmanov versus Vicente Luque either. So I think Shavkat Rachmanov realistically could be a decent fight for either um, Neal or Luque. Um, other fights for Luque, he's probably looking at like a Li Jing Liang, a Michel Pieda. He's probably looking at someone maybe just outside the top 15. Michael Chiesa, maybe. Um, so I think those are some other options for Vicente Luque moving forward. Now, let's get into the ultimate fighter fights. The first fight that we're going to discuss is Muhammad Usman versus Zach Pauga. Um, I'm not sure how you pronounce Zach Pauga because I'm pretty sure it was pronounced Pauga on the ultimate fighter. But then on the broadcast, they were, like, emphasizing the U, I believe. I think they were saying, like, Pauga or something. 
Um, so I'm not necessarily sure how to pronounce his name. I've heard it pronounced two different ways by the UFC, so I'm just going to go with Pauga because that's what I heard first. Um, but Muhammad Usman versus Zach Pauga. Um, I was I was really surprised that Muhammad Usman was able to land that knockout shot, that left hook. He did a great job landing it. Um, very, very good strike. And I think that is a great display of his power where if he hits you on the button like that, it doesn't have to be a big overhand. He will put you out. Um, I was very impressed by that performance simply because of how much I respect Zach Pauga. Zach Pauga was someone who, while, while watching The Ultimate Fighter, um, I really, really thought had a good chance at winning. Um, and I thought he had a good chance at winning this fight just by being the more active fighter, and I think that's how he was able to win the first round, but eventually Mohamed Usman was able to land that big shot that won him that fight, and credit to him because a lot of guys go 15 minutes without landing that big shot, and they walk out of there on the wrong side of a decision. So for Usman to be able to land that shot is very, very meaningful, um, so I was impressed with that. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if we see Zach Pauga in the UFC uh, I do think he is UFC caliber. The UFC needs light heavyweights. I think you. He, I think he should probably get the call. I think he beats a lot of these guys at heavyweight. The heavyweight division is pretty. You know, I don't want to say bad, but the the lower portions of that heavyweight division, I could point you to probably fifteen regional level guys that should be signed by the UFC, in my opinion. And they could probably go out there and beat your Jared Vanderas, your Chase Shermans, you know, your Josh Parisians. I actually yeah, your Josh Parisians, your Justin Taffas, you know, your Dante Mays. I, I think there are, you know, a decent amount of guys that could compete against the, that level of fighters. Um, and when you're looking at that, um, I think Zach Pauga is one of those guys who can compete against that level of fighter. Um, and regardless, even if he can't, I think that division does need to get a little bit deeper and I think that would be a good opportunity for him um, to kind of round out his skill set against some heavyweights who are, you know, good but not tremendous. So I think that is, you know, something to keep in mind for Zach Pauga and for a lot of other heavyweights that we see. Now, um, also, while we're on this topic of up and coming light heavyweights, um, I forgot his name, but the um, the the guy who won on Dana White Contender Series Season 2, I was really impressed by him, and I think he can do um, some good things in the UFC. Uh, shoot. Oh, well. Um, but that's just a little side throwaway comment while we were on the Waldo Cortez Acosta. Um, I liked him. I think he can do good things. Um, now let's move on to the other fight from the Ultimate Fighter finale, Juliana Miller versus Brogan Walker. Good fight here. I was a little bit surprised by Brogan Walker's game plan. From the show, I identified Brogan Walker as a fighter with a really good jab and a really good counter puncher, some good hooks, decent power in her hands as well. 
I thought she was going to win this fight because I thought she would be able to fight behind that jab of hers. I thought she would be able to land some counter hooks on these, you know, I don't want to say sloppy striking of Juliana Miller. Um, Juliana Miller did show, show up with a little bit better striking in this fight than she displayed on the Ultimate Fighter. Um, but I thought Brogan Walker was going to find some good counter opportunities while fighting behind her jab. Instead, she decided to throw a lot of big-time overhands while digging for takedowns. Um, I don't want to blame this on Brogan Walker, but I will blame it on her corner. I don't know what the advice was in the corner. I don't know how you see how that first round plays out where Brogan Walker digs for, you know, plummels for double underhooks, get double underhooks, and she eventually ends up getting taken down. And then they repeat that two more times in, you know, the second round, the third round. And, you know, she eventually loses. I, I think she lost mainly because of her game plan, not because of her skill set. Um, and that's not to say Juliana Miller couldn't have won this fight otherwise, but... I don't if if you're a grappler like Juliana Miller, you know, your job gets a lot easier when the striker is pummeling in and, and looking for takedowns of their own. It, it's just her job to get that fight to the ground and get that fight finished became easier due to her opponent's game plan. Like I said, I don't fault Brogan Walker for that, but her coaches I think pointed her in the wrong direction. She fought much better on the show. Um, when she was counter, you know, when she was defending the takedowns and, and landing strikes of her own, that's exactly how she beat um, Gallardo. You know, she was sprawling. I know Juliana Miller usually looks for um, throws and, and goes to clinch and goes to toss. She doesn't traditionally shoot as as a big time wrestler, but regardless, um, when she counter grapples and, and throws her you know, good jab and some good counters, she lands and, and she wins because of that. And we didn't see that in this fight. Um, so I, I do think Juliana Miller fought very well. I'm not kind of saying that to disparage Juliana Miller, but rather I just was very, very surprised by the game plan of Walker. And that's the first thing I wanted to address. For Juliana Miller, she went out there and did exactly what she needed to do. She won just about every single grappling exchange. Um, I think I maybe even like 100% won every single grappling exchange. I don't want to say that for sure, but she won a large majority of those grappling exchanges. She wore on Brogan Walker with some ground and pound, was deep on a submission attempt. Um, I believe if I'm remembering correctly, she nearly finished that fight with a rear naked choke. Um, but yeah, she did a really good job and fought a really good fight. She did exactly what she needed to do to win. Therefore, she deserved to win. Really strong fight from Juliana Miller. Moving on to another fighter that did exactly what they needed to do to win, to get a win, was Sergey Spivak. Sergey Spivak, um, my big thing that I really like about Sergey Spivak is he knows when he has that grappling advantage, right? Um, he knew he had the grappling advantage, so he wasn't going to play around in the striking aspect, and he went out there, took down Augusto Sakai several times, and while he was on top, he, he did a good job working with the ground and pound and got himself a ground and pound finish. This was textbook, textbook, you know, taking advantage of your grappling advantage. I liked it. I thought he performed well. Um, he will be ranked likely at that 14 spot. Augusto Sakai will likely be unranked come Tuesday. Um, almost said Sunday for some reason. But on Tuesday, Augusto Sakai will likely be unranked. 
moving forward for each of these guys, I wouldn't be surprised if Sergei Spivak has to fight an unranked fighter to kind of legitimize his spot in the rankings. That seems to be something the UFC likes to do. However, I would not be surprised if they look to do Sergei Spivak versus like a Marcin Tabora maybe. I think Tabora might be ranked or booked. Um, he is booked against Alexander Romanov. Um, maybe a black knowing even off to, you know, they're sitting at 14 and 15 or, you know, the other way around. I think that that fight may make a level of sense. And for Gusto Sakai, um, I think he should fight Walt Harris. I don't know what Walt Harris's plan is, but he has not fought since he lost to Marcin Tybura. Which was, I believe, a very long time ago. Let me give you the exact date on that. And why didn't it pop up? That's frustrating. Um, boo, 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 boo. Walt Harris lost to Marcin Tybura in twenty, the summer of 2021. So he has he has been out for a minute. Um, if Walt Harris is looking to return soon, I think an Augusto Sakai fight makes a lot of sense for both fighters. Um, someone would be getting back in the horse, back on the horse after that fight. And then the man Terrence McKinney went out there and got himself a first round submission finish. I love watch, watching Ter Terrence McKinney fight. I think just about everybody does. Um, for Terrence, he went out there displayed the power in his hands every time he throws a shot you just kind of go you know you just kind of get the initial reaction of he could get a finish here very heavy hands also a very underrated grappler does not get enough credit for his grappling um, but he put the grappling on display once again here that now gives him two submission wins in his last three fights so Terrence McKinney is someone that I'm very high on in this lightweight division I think he has a lot of potential for someone at the age of what 26 or 27 27 so yeah Terrence McKinney um high high potential and he called out Patty the Batty and I think that fight makes a lot of sense right I don't know that it it's going to get booked because I'm not sure that the UFC wants to burn one of those two fighters I think that is a fight that the UFC would rather book in the rankings but if either guy falters before that point we won't see that fight I think Terrence McKinney versus Patty the Batty is a good example of a fight that is just destined for fight of the night, and the winner will be destined for good things in the sport for sure. So I think that that is a fight that should get booked. If the UFC declines to book that fight, I do think there are a handful of other fights for Terrence McKinney that make sense. Um, Mark, Mark Diacasey, not a bad fight. Michael Johnson, not a bad fight. Rafael Alves, not a bad fight. Jamie Malarkey, not a bad fight. Um, so those are just some names that um, you may see Terrence McKinney booked up against. And now that we have gotten to the prelims, we're going to speed through these prelims. Michael, Michael O, he went out there and just took it to Sam Alvey. You know, for Michael, you know, good win. Um, but I don't think that really moves him forward in that 185-pound division. For Sam Alvey, he's probably not going to fight in the UFC again. 
I believe that was the last fight on this contract, and I believe he said he had a broken jaw. Bad combo. Very bad combo. Brian Battle got a tremendous KO of Takashi Sato. I was very concerned looking at Brian Battle on the scale, but, you know, he, he looked pretty drawn out. However, he went out there and performed well, got himself a massive win over Takashi Sato. Corey McKenna, great, great Von Flu, Von Flu choke against Miranda Granger. The second A fighter holds on to that guillotine too long. You should be looking at that Von Flu choke. Corey McKenna just did that, just did that and got herself a win. Myra Bueno Silva and Stephanie Edgar, Edgar started the fight night off with, you know, a very, very strange fight and something I don't think I've seen watching MMA live. Um, but, you know, a couple ringside officials. So basically what happened if you did not watch this fight, Myra Bueno Silva has Stephanie Edgar in an armbar. Um, she's cranking on the arm and then she lets go and says she tapped. And then Stephanie Edgar stands up and is like, you know, doesn't really say anything. She wasn't like, yeah, I tapped or no, I didn't tap. Um, and then Keith Peterson, no, it was not Keith Peterson, Chris Tognoni, he was like, well, fire up the instant replay. So they fire up the instant replay, and the replay official was Mark Smith, I believe, and Mark Smith was like, I didn't really see anything. I don't have an angle at it. Um... And then one of the, and then they were like, okay, we got to pull the judges. Judges, did you see a tap? One judge said, I 100% saw a tap. And then they were like, okay, you saw a tap. Fight's over. Strange fight. Um, Herb Dean also was like, yeah, I saw the tap too. So there were some other people that wasn't just one judge. Um, very interesting fight, but for Myra Bueno Silva, she went out there and got a really good armbar finish over a good grappler in Stephanie Egger. So good for her. Now, moving on, we have four fights that were booked. Let's see. All pretty good fights. Nothing wild, but let's run through them real quick. Asgar Askarov versus Brandon Royval, October 15th. Great fight. Great fight. Great fight. Um, we talked a lot about booking this 125-pound division after UFC 276. Or was it 277? 277. Did I get it right? I did. You'd think my memory would be better. But it was 277. Uh, when we were talking about UFC 277 and recapping that pay-per-view, we talked a lot about booking 125 pounds. The UFC got on the horse really quick with booking Askar Astorov versus Brandon Royval. I don't know if that's the fight that I said they should book. I'm really neutral on how you book that division. Um, because I think you can, you know, looking at three through six, you can really do a lot of good things and create some good matchups. So I was pretty, I think if I remember correctly, I was pretty, you know, indifferent. But Eskara Eskara versus Brandon Royval should be a very entertaining fight. UFC 280 picked up another ranked fight when Volkan Uzdemir and Nikita Kurlov got added for October 22nd at UFC 280. This one, pretty good matchmaking here. Both guys got a win at UFC's London. One over Paul Craig, one over Gustafson. And now they're getting squared up against each other. Ozemir is ranked 8th. Kurlov's ranked 11th. Those will change because Jamal Hill is going to hop Volkan Uzdemir. So it's probably going to be looking more like Uzdemir at 9 and Kurlov at 11. Pretty good matchmaking from the UFC. 
Mateus Nicolau versus Matt Snell got added to a card on December 3rd. I believe that's maybe the first I'm hearing of this December 3rd card, but we have two fights added to it. Like I said, the first being Mateus Nicolau versus Matt Snell, and this fight makes a lot of sense. And I'm very glad they made this fight. Matt Schnell called for this fight after his fight with Sumodarji. And this is a good example of Matt Schnell made the most reasonable call out of all time. A lot of times you see guys make call outs and they call for a little bit too much in their call out. Matt Schnell did not do that. Um, Matt Schnell called, made one of the most reasonable call outs I've ever seen after going to war with another fighter. Calls out Mateus Nicolau. Like I said, very reasonable. And he got that fight. Good call out because you get the fight. Good booking by the UFC. I like it all the way around. And then Tracy Cortez versus Amanda Hebas was also added to that December 3rd card. I am a little bit more surprised by this fight. This is probably the fight that surprised me the most. Um, I know technically Amanda Hebas is ranked 10th at the strawweight division. I don't know what division this place is. This fight is taking place at. Um... Hebas is ranked at 115. Cortez is ranked at 125. Hebas did fight Chukagan at 125. So if I had to guess, I would imagine Hebas is going to that 125 pound division. Um, let's see. Tapology has it listed as a flyweight bout. So that makes sense. Um, I am surprised they made this fight. Um, I think that 115 division is a little bit deeper than that flyweight division. Um, so it's a very good opportunity for Tracy Cortez to go out there and get a big, big win for Hebas. It's her entry into that 125-pound division. And if she can put on a good performance, she'll get someone in that 5 to 10 slot, I'm assuming. So it makes a lot of sense for both fighters, but it just wasn't really a fight that I was expecting to see. Now, let's go and let's preview UFC Fight Night, or what is this, UFC San Diego? UFC Fight Night San Diego. That's a mouthful. Just call it UFC San Diego. Oh, wait. That is, oh, UFC San Diego. UFC Fight Night San Diego. UFC Fight Night San Diego, also called UFC Fight Night Vera vs. Cruz. These... Cards have about 15 names. I'm sure it's also called UFC on ESPN 44 or something stupid too. Regardless, main event, Marlon Vera versus Dominic Cruz. And like I said, I haven't done film study or anything on this card yet. That comes later in the week. But right now, from what I've seen so far, I'm leaning Cheeto Vera in this main event. I just think the power and durability I don't want to say durability, but the power of Marlon Vera, I think, will be able to affect Dominic Cruz. And he's going to have a long reach advantage and size advantage in this one, too. Marlon Vera usually it looks pretty big at 135 pounds. Dominic Cruz, not the biggest bantamweight that you've ever seen. So I do lean Cheeto in this fight. But if Dominic Cruz gets it done, I would not complain. Um, but I do envision Cheeto winning a decision just by him landing the bigger power shots throughout the fight. Um, that's really the way I see this going. I just think he, he's more consistent, lands some more damaging strikes, 
um, and, and that takes him to a decision win. Um, if Cruz wants to win this fight, he's going to have to make Cheeto miss and miss a lot. And I'm not sure how sustainable that is over the course of a five-round fight. I think eventually you get hurt and banged up a couple times. I think it would. I think I would have a. I think I would like Cruz a little bit more in a three-round fight, where he only has to outwork him in two of those rounds. Um, but over a five-round fight, I think it gets real difficult to make Cheeto miss at a high percentage over the course of five rounds. So, like I said, I will take Cheeto by decision. Now, we are just going to go through this very, very quickly for the rest of this card because that, I believe, was our last ranked matchup. Nope, we have one more. Um, but, you know, I don't really have a lot to say about a lot of these fights. Not saying they're bad fights, but they're not, you know, fights that you want to sit here and discuss for five minutes apiece if you're not doing a super technical breakdown of their skills. Which, like I said, I haven't done film, so I'm not planning to do. Um, so we'll just go brief. David Onama versus Nate Landwehr. I really like David Onama. I think this is a good fight for him. Good matchup. Um, good matchmaking as well. This should be a very entertaining fight. I do leave David lean David Onama. Gerald Merchardt versus Bruno Silva. Um, I really like Bruno Silva in this fight. He fought pretty well against Alex Pereira. He got finished in the third round, I believe, but that fight was close. And, you know, he had some momentum in several different instances in that fight. Prior to his loss to Pereira, he was on a 3-6-7 fight win streak with a lot, a lot of KOs. I think he lands on Gerald Merchard early, and I think he's able to put Gerald Merchard out. I will pick Bruno Silva. Devin Clark going back down to heavyweight to fight Azamat Merkazov. I really like Azamat Merkazov. Um, I don't like him as much as a lot of other prospects, but um, I do think he is a good prospect for this light heavyweight division. I will lean Azamat Merkazov in this one. Nina Nunez versus Cynthia Calvillo. This fight was supposed to take place a couple weeks ago. I think both of these fighters have one foot out the door. They're both getting up there, and I think they both retire relatively soon. This fight could go either way. Um, flip a coin. I lean... Nina Nunez. I lean Nina Nunez. Yasmin Yardigi versus Yasmin Lucindo. Um... Two very, very good regional-level women fighters. Um, Yasmin is 8-0 in what I believe is the Latin America regional scene, um, fighting out of Mexico, according to Tapology. Got some good wins at Combate Global. Um, Combate, excuse me. Um, and... Lucindo, good wins on the Brazilian regional scene. Um, I really don't have much on this fight coming in, um, but I would advise you to watch this fight because I've noticed a trend where a lot of these women who are making their UFC debut, a lot of them are better than I expect. Um, I haven't, you know, I think there is, you know, a, a big skill difference in MMA, you know, on the men's and women's side. I think that, you know, fighters like Stephanie Egger and Myra Bueno Silva. Myra Bueno Silva Silva's starting to look really good, but you know, your your Eggers, your um, Miranda Grangers, 
you know, I think some of those fighters are going to start being on their way out. And they're going to be replaced by fighters like Yasmin and Yasmin. And we're getting those fighters at a higher level. I don't remember her name for the life of me. But um, there was a debut. There was a debuting um, fighter that really impressed me a couple weeks ago on the prelims of one of these fight night cards. I will get her name in just a second. Natalia Silva. Natalia Silva came in off the original scene right into the UFC, and she really impressed me. So um, I think that we're beginning to see a trend of more of those types of fights and more of those types of fighters. Um, this time we have two, you know, in and upcoming fighters booked against each other. So, you know, I don't know how that's going to make this a little bit different, but um, it is something to keep in mind. And I think that should be a fight that you watch because it may be beneficial to you later on then we have Lukasz Brzezinski versus Martin Boudet and this is a heavyweight fight two unranked heavyweights and I'm gonna lean Boudet in this one I was impressed by him I've watched some of his fights in the past you know in a heavyweight division that doesn't have a lot of prospects Boudet has looked decent and he may be the best prospect in that division Meanwhile, Brzezinski, he has some very bad tattoos. If those are tattoos, I hope those are sponsors on his tapology page. Um, he's got a good sleeve, but this chest piece and belly piece both look very bad. I hope those are just, you know, those spray-on sponsorships that fighters get before fights in the original scene. Regardless, um, last fight, Dylan Potter, that was a no contest on the Contender Series. I wish they would tell you who originally won that bout. Um, regardless, um, prior to that, he had two wins, a draw. Not bad. Um, I will lean Martin Boudet, however. Gabriel Benitez versus Charlie Ontiveros. Um, probably leaning Gabriel Benitez in this fight. Um, Charlie Ontiveros, not a bad, bad fighter. But he did have a pretty bad string of bad luck. Um, I hope he pulls it through, but I will lean Benitez in this one. Odie Osborne versus Tyson Nam may be the fight that I'm most excited for. I think this should be a very entertaining, striking matchup. I lean Odie Osborne. Really like Tyson Nam. I think he can win this fight. But um, I lean Odie. And I think that may be your prelim fight that ends up being a fight of the night. Angela Hill versus Lupita Godinez. I will lean Angela Hill. Um, well, I like Lupita. I, I think that Angela Hill, just her experience, you know, she is 13 and 12, but I, you know, I don't think she lost all of these fights that she lost. Um, she's got some decisions that should have gone her way. Her record should look a little bit better. Um, with that being said, don't be surprised if... Um, Lupita is able to win. I think she can win this fight. I will just take Hill, at least at this stage, unless I change my mind, which I may do before the fights. Yusef Jalal Zalal versus Damon Blackshear. Blackshear is a UFC debutant. Yusef Zalal was someone who a lot of people liked as a prospect until he lost to Ila Tuporia. 
and then people kind of got off the Yusuf Zalal train. Um, since that Taporia fight, it hasn't gotten any better for him, as he has lost two fights to Sean Woodson and Seung Woo Choi. This is probably him fighting for his spot in the UFC, if I had to guess. Damon Blackshear is on a four-fight win streak, and three three of those wins came in Cage, Cage Fury. His last loss was to Danny Sabatello, and if you know anything about Bellator, Sabatello has done very well in Bellator, so that is not a terrible loss. Um, and we have two fights left, and let's get through them very, very quickly. We have Jason Jason Witt versus Josh Quinlan, and this fight was canceled. It was supposed to be last week. Um, not the best fight. Jason Witt has a very bad chin. Quinlan can probably touch his chin. Um, so I think I will pick Josh Quinlan in this bout. Ariana Lipsky versus Priscilla Cachueta. Ariana Lipsky does have some really technical mixed martial or er, Muay Thai. Um, Priscilla Cachueta a little bit more heavy-handed. I think Ariana Lipsky can use her kicks to stay away and control the distance a little bit and outvalue her way to a decision. You notice how the two fights that were supposed to happen last week, I had a little bit more knowledge on. You know, I'm not kidding when I say I do my research throughout the week, but, you know, just not worth it to do a preview every Friday. So we're only doing those for pay-per-views. Um, but, you know, you can find my picks on Twitter and on social media. So last week we were 7 for 10. Not terrible. Um Went, o- went over two on the Ultimate Fighter fight, so that kind of sucked. But other than that, not too bad. Um, thank you so much for watching this episode of the Head Kick KO Podcast. We will be back next week with a recap of UFC Fight Night Cruz versus Vera. Um, also known as UFC Fight Night San Diego. Just call it UFC San Diego. Make it easy. Um, regardless, thank you so much for watching this episode of the Head KO Podcast. If you enjoyed, make sure to tune in next week. But thank you so much for watching this episode. Goodbye. Oh! In front, take him in the face! Kevin Lee with the ultimate...